Welcome once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. I am your co-host, Mike One. Co-host also, Mike, is here as well. Another Oscar race checkpoint with good reason. Tons of awards news. We got Golden Globes news. We got top 10 list news, National Board of Review, AFI, blah, blah, blah. All the acronyms you could possibly (laughs) want have released their best films of the year. And we are recapping all of it in this show, Michael. Yeah, this is our how many Oscar race checkpoints in a row? It looks like third, and it's going to be like the third of twenty. I'm pretty this sure. Is the time of year, yeah. I have to do it, so it's uh, we're 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 getting in our groove, or we're thinking about getting in our groove. At some point, <laughs> we'll groove. We'll consider possibly thinking about maybe considering a groove at one point in the future. Well, I don't I don't know what a groove is. I don't right. think I've ever been in a groove to be honest. They better not be sitting in my ass groove. That's from The Simpsons from back in the day. <laughs> I've yeah I've done one of those that's yeah. but you know that's just because I I like my places on certain couches that's all I mean <laughs> we nestle in to watch all these movies in as we have right. been lately yeah and uh, with that we will be giving you a review <laughs> later today as we were both nestled in to watch Pinocchio uh, Mike also has a review of Emancipation I have a review of All Quiet on the Western Front we're gonna get to those at the end of this episode let's start we had to move some things around or I personally did because. Look, Mike wanted to start with a different story, but the National Board of Review released their top 10. We'll start there. I got to give my co-host a chance to brag here in the way that I do about the most minuscule and unimportant of things. <laughs> Go ahead, Mike. Talk to me, Goose. <laughs> top Gun Maverick. One NBR's best film of the year. Uh, it was number one on their ranking of the top ten films of the year. Only three times since the year 2000 has the number one National Board of Review movie not been Oscar's Best Picture nominated. Uh, that's good for Maverick's Best Picture nomination odds, obviously, but less good is the fact that the number one film of the year from NBR has only ended up winning the Best Picture Oscar three times in that same time frame, most recently that from Green Book. So, Mike, take your victory lap, knowing that you're currently supporting this year's Green Book. Go ahead. Well, I'll eat a folded pizza uh, like a sandwich in celebration, regardless. Uh, But (laughs) look, uh, the rest of NBR's top films include After Sun, Avatar The Way of Water, The Banshees of Sharon, Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Fablemans, Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery, RRR, Till, The Woman King, and Women Talking. Yeah, I've done a complete 180. I think Top Gun Maverick's going to win Best Picture. <laughs> After, I really do. Yeah, you were telling me earlier, like, you got to get David Long to place a bet for you now yeah. because we can't really place a bet right now in our, our you know, these parts of the our neck of the nape, right. the, the nip of <laughs> the, the woods, <laughs> wherever we are here. So we're, we're, we're having trouble finding, like, a legal betting system. So if anybody knows in East Hollywood where, where to do that, mm. that isn't, like, Jimmy the Foot, I'd prefer. Or even if it is Jimmy the Foot. I prefer to go <laughs> elsewhere with my business this year. I don't know about you, because I'm taking a little bit of a gamble this time. I, what's going to beat? I, I think we're down to those to, to that and everything everywhere all at once. I don't. I think we're going to have two films from the first and second quarter of this year. The Fablemans is still a contender, no? No. Yeah, I mean, after it wins Globes and uh, Critics' Choice. 
It's so uninspired to pick that, though, isn't it? There's not like that's going to be your wire to wire front runner to win. This isn't the COVID year, you know what I mean? Like it made sense with Nomadland Look, because there's only to, so many movies to pick from. You don't have to convince me. I'm with you. I'm yeah. just, you know, I'm, I'm guessing that it's still the front runner, and I know it's still the front runner in Vegas. So they're guessing as well, and they don't yeah. like they don't like to guess. They like to know. That's a good point. I, I really don't want the Fablemans to win Best Picture. The most notable uh, omissions from the National Board of Review Top 10, uh, we have films like Tar, Elvis, She Said, Nope, Wakanda Forever, Triangle of Sadness, and Babylon missing the list there. I mean, obviously, NBR, a New York City-based organization. Tar, again, not doing all that great with what you think would be a quote-unquote home game for it, even though it uh, did just win the New York Film Critics Circle Award for Best Film, and it was the leading nomination getter at Gotham's, even though it only quote-unquote won Best Screenplay there. Yeah, I, I am so... I am so confused by Tar's New York performance up till now. It's very high or very low. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Look, Wikipedia actually lists the overall Oscar crossover stat for NBR from 1930 through 2018 with Best Picture, and that states NBR has selected 74 Best Pictures in its top 10 lists, Michael. And to catch us up with the last three years, they selected a 75th with Nomadland, but they failed to have Coda make their top 10 list last year and Parasite make their top 10 list a few years ago. Now, uh, there's, I'm going to have more on that in a minute perha- on perhaps why. Coda was a late breaker, right? I mean, I, I guess that kind of makes sense. Parasite, I don't really understand them missing that, especially with the international stuff. But we'll That's get what into I'll it. explain, yeah. yeah. Uh, all right, so how about for more recent Oscars crossover? 26 of the last 50 NBR top films have been nominated for Best Picture. That means 26 of the past 44 Best Picture nominations in the past five years have all first shown up on the NBR top 10 list. So that means, as far as a crossover percentage goes, NBR has been hitting about 59% of the past Last uh, 50 or so or five years worth, I guess, of Oscars Best Picture nominees. Not great, Bob. Not great. Yeah. Uh, look, it is More called the half. it is called the National Board of Review. And yet we do have a few international films selected throughout NBR's history from Roma back through The Artist. Uh, you can go back to the, the Last Emperor and other such films that were co-productions. Roma was, in fact, a co-American and Mexican production, the significance of which I will explain later. But especially when you consider Parasite missing NBR's top 10, I'm wondering what their rules are because here we have RRR getting selected. And this is a, this is a momentous day for RRR and means even a little bit more as their Wikipedia page Mike reads it is only the second international film non-English quote-unquote second non-English film ever selected by MBR in their top 10 list uh, which includes the artists and therefore does not include Roma because Roma's co-production status there now they did select Parasite as their best international film in 2019 they Mm. do have a list a top five international films list that we have this year with All Quiet on the Western Front, Argentina, 1985, decision to leave EO and St. Omer with Close taking the overall best international film this year. But it's strange that some years are really just the exceptional years where we have an international film out above the pack 
it, it is included in NBR's top 10, but not the most exceptional year with Parasite, which wound up going the distance for the first time ever at the at Best Picture. And also, if RRR is going to make the NBR top 10 list, how is it not going to be the best international feature? How does right. that end up going to to close like it did? Well, I think it's actually that that does make a little sense, Michael, because I was looking at uh, their awards. And if you are like the artist was involved in the, That's the uh, exception, if you make the list, you can't win the you can't the, win the other okay. other award. I think uh, India wants that call back, huh? I mean, if you if you had to run that back and you knew R, isn't RRR not India's selection. Correct. For international features. So if, if I mean, if they knew if you had to pick your international feature selection now and they had a little time to watch all these critics groups and associations and top 10 lists fawn over RRR for multiple categories in the way they are, not just with feature, but also with uh, director uh, and maybe a, a one or two other technicals, India would you think they would pick that? No. Uh, they should have uh, back when. That's why we covered right. it like two weeks in a row. We were talking about RRR's omission, and uh, this is this is a this is a snub power perhaps where NBR got upset about that. I mean, we've seen that impulse before, and that's a good one. I agree with it. So perhaps RRR is getting an extra boost, but also we have uh, you know we have the craziest fight scenes ever, the greatest dance scenes ever. <laughs> And just watch RRR, people. You won't be disappointed uh, at your cinematic experience. Let's just say that much. It is a crazy effing movie. <laughs> I thought you were talking about Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio for a second there. With those, uh, not so much. Not yeah, as much. Right. I, I can't believe I do this every year. People are yeah. People are going to get mad at me. I'm, I can't I, wait. I am setting myself up, up for people getting mad. I am yeah. so happy. At your take on that movie. Um, <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> Other NBR awards here. As far as multiple award-winning films from the National Board of Review, Banshees of Inishirin won a lot. It won lead actor for Colin Farrell. It won supporting actor for Brandon Gleeson. And it won original screenplay from NBR. Uh, you tweeted it a while back. Frazier is losing to Farrell. Uh, Routinely. Yeah, and when do we start getting concerned for Brendan Frazier? Is it after all these recent reviews on film Twitter just crushing that movie so again it's always important to remember film twitter isn't you know real life it's it's its own small sect and small niche of the film community but is is frazier in danger of like the daniel deadweiler thing where where's that second nomination coming from i you keep saying this and i keep wondering if makeup and hair is just yeah that's true I, i forgot you brought that up that's true but yeah you're right i mean it has it's people have kind of backed off the whale it's been falling on a lot of best picture lists I don't know. I mean, I think there's obviously reason to worry. There's reason to worry about him winning, certainly. Colin Farrell has, like, he just keeps beating him. The whale is divisive. Yeah. Uh, that's that's what seems to be true no matter uh, no matter who's saying anything about it. I, even, even David Long was like, I hope you guys like it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, more, t- more multiple award-winning films from NBR. Top Gun won top film. It also won Best Cinematography. And The Fablemans had Steven Spielberg win Best Director and Gabriel LaBelle won Breakthrough Performance. Ultimately, Top Gun needs to win like this uh, to push it further into the awards conversation, in my opinion. Uh, NBR members may not cross over. AFI members may not cross over. We'll talk about AFI in a few minutes. But The Five Bloods, after it does so well at AFI, then does really well at Critics' Choice. So there can be a domino effect, and I'm sure you can find cases where NBR kind of crosses over later on in the year. I I believe that's happened before on this show. Mm -hmm. I just remembered The Five Bloods with AFI doing it more recently. 
Didn't the Five Bloods win NBR's top film too? Am I or am I? Am I it that? won AFI's. It top was AFI. Film. Okay, yeah. I thought, I thought so it won one of the two. Book. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, as far as more categories that just confuse us and seem to be wide open, Janelle Monae wins again for supporting actress. Maybe a bit of an upset there, you know. With that category being what it is, being as wide open as it's probably foolish to ask if anybody is a front runner right now. But is Janelle Monae right now at least entrenched in the top five conversation for supporting actress? She's only on three of 22 Gold Derby experts top five lists for their supporting actress. I expect that will probably change soon because it's worth noting that the winner of the NBR Supporting Actress Award has ended up being nominated at the Oscars in each of the past seven years in a row. And the NBR even actually picked the winner of the uh, Oscar for that category twice in the same seven-year stretch. Well, she should be, in my opinion, having enjoyed uh, Glass Onion last weekend uh, or two weeks ago. I forget what the hell I watched. Time's a flat circle, baby. Yeah, and uh, she's awesome in it. Is she a supporting actress? No. (laughs) It's ridiculous. She's in most of the freaking movie, Uh, but uh, it's great that she's involved. Do you personally get offended by category fraud? I just, I mean, it's kind of silly in this instance, like like the Daniel Kaluuya thing uh, last year. Or two years ago, what, again, time is a flat circle. Mm-hmm. I, and and the Sam Rockwell, and then you know Carrie Mulligan this year. I mean, these are lead performances, and it is very silly. So, but it's That's been happening interesting. Forever. I I think I mean the the ones you the performances you just cited. I I have no. I mean, the most egregious offense was Viola Davis for Fences. But even then, I was like, I'm, I was fine with it. I don't know that there's any category fraud that could happen that would make me clutch my pearls in the way Brad that some Pitt, people seem to do. Brad Pitt for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, too. I mean, he's got a whole sequence. Yeah, but it was Leo. I, complete, I can at least rationalize. There hasn't been an instance where I haven't been able to rationalize it. Bigger star as lead and, and you know, other star as supporting right. has been happening since the beginning of the Oscars. So right. I get it. I get it. I do get it. However... In terms of screen time, in terms of importance to the plot, Janelle Monet is certainly a lead actress in the movie. But uh, yeah, so I mean, we could debate this forever, and a good thing we have a year-round podcast to do it on. <laughs> <laughs> All Quiet on the Western Front ended up taking home Best Adapted Screenplay. Mike Charlotte Wells uh, did well. I didn't even mean to do that. I'm so sorry. You <laughs> backed into that one. You should have just went with it. Charlotte yeah, Wells just, did well. Just, <laughs> do you get it? <laughs> you dork. Wells got another trophy for her after Sun Mantle. She won Best Directorial Debut. Debut. Marcel the Shell. Yeah. So Pinocchio and Marcel may be coming down to a... Uh, that's uh, my new that's my new fandom pick right now. I want yeah? Marcel the Shell to kick the shit out of that stupid wooden <laughs> Oliver Twist. <laughs> yeah, let's get Oliver Twist to play this little Italian icon. That seems to be what we're coming down to, right? It's so going to be mad. one of those two movies, it would seem, for animated feature. NBR said Marcel the Shell, <laughs> at least for this round, uh, I wins it. Close, like you said, won Best International Feature. Senior Best Documentary, Women Talking, Best Ensemble. You mentioned that All the Beauty and the Bloodshed and Argentina 1985 won the NBR Freedom of Expression Awards in terms of a full National Board of Review roundup. Okay, so that's NBR. Let's get to the other uh, top ten list that usually comes coincides with NBR. That's AFI, and their top ten was Avatar The Way of Water, Elvis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Fablemans, Nope, She Said Tar, here's Tar, 
Top Gun Maverick, The Woman King, and Women Talking. Now, AFI is much more specific in its rules. Uh, Non-American productions, non-American films do not get selected, so RRR and After Sun could not cross over with, uh, or from NBR to AFI here. And AFI makes up for this by giving out AFI Special Awards, which this year went to the Banshees of Innis Sharon, uh, whereas past winners have been like Belfast, Parasite, Roma, going back to the artist, Michael. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Elvis gets in the American Film Institute's top ten. Ban- my, this tongue is not going to work for all these acronyms and institutions, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, Banshees is ineligible, so that's out of the top ten, though it does get the special award like you just mentioned. Personally, I, nice to see she said make an appearance on at least one of these lists. I don't. I still believe that that movie is not dead, but we'll see. Tar, <laughs> like we've mentioned, nowhere to be found on NBRs. It shows up on AFIs. As far as the crossover for the movies that appear on both lists, here's the rundown. Avatar 2, Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Fablemans, Maverick, Woman King, and Woman Talking. You can throw uh, Banshees of Inishirin in there as well as it won the Special Award. That's seven films that appear on both the National Board of Review and the American Film Institute's top ten lists. Are you surprised Elvis didn't get NBR, or is that like NBR being NBR, New York, New Yorkers being New Yorkers kind of thing? But this is AFI. This is out out uh, in L.A. where Elvis seems to be campaigning extremely well, where everybody is just like having a party at every screening and every gala event over there. So Elvis shows up across the uh, country. If Oscar noms were announced tomorrow, I'd be surprised if Elvis wasn't a best picture now. Yeah. So that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, uh, in terms of AFI to Best Picture, the historical crossover, it's 35 out of the last 50, which means 35 out of the last 44 Best Picture nominations, which is actually better, even though it's less inclusive. It's actually better than NBR uh, with a 79% crossover wow. percentage over uh, 59%. And we retweeted a couple of Zoe Rose Bryant tweets she to, go, great, yeah. Yeah, to go further into the, this historical crossover. She went an additional eight years years uh for us where she said 88 out of the last 130 of the afi top 10 selections ultimately head towards best picture noms which means 88 of the last 115 best picture noms of these last 13 years which amounts to 75.9 percent so the afi strong uh, crossover is a stronger one I do follow Zoe Rose Bryant as well, at Z-O-E-R-O-S-E-B-R-Y-A-N-T. She does great work. She works with Next Best Picture. She works with Awards Watch. Mm-hmm. She's a great follow, does a lot of great research. She and also she does came my up... stats for me, which I really <laughs> yeah, appreciate. It, was, it really helped us out this year, <laughs> as we usually do those ourselves, but saved us a little time. But she, uh, as far as the stats she dug up with, so going back to the expanded field for Best Picture when it was at least could be 10, might be 10, now it's a mandatory 10, um, so back to 2009, films that missed the best, best picture field, but made both NBR and AFI, we usually get a couple a year. It's usually at least two, sometimes mm-hmm. one, sometimes three. And it, there's also the stat she had for films that make best picture, but were on neither list. That's usually one to three films a year, usually at least one. So if you have a favorite movie here that's on neither top ten list you're usually filling in at least one to two, maybe three movies every year that are going to make the best picture field anyway. And if you have a film that you love that appears on both lists, that doesn't mean it's a shoe in to be nominated. So 
I guess, Mike, if you just had a gun to your head right now, I wish we had a different analogy to we use that way too much. But anyway, what movie is on both these lists that you have the least faith in showing up in the uh, Best Picture field if the Oscars noms were announced tomorrow? And conversely, is there a movie that doesn't show up on either list that you think is close to a shoe-in for nominating in Best Picture? Well, we mentioned it earlier. I would say Elvis is not on both lists. Mm-hmm. Tar Tar is not on both lists. And I would I would indeed still expect both of those uh, as Best Picture nominees. However, you know, we're seeing support for Tar Wayne, perhaps, in that respective. And I, I, and I, still, I still hold out hope that this year could go more towards an international film, more towards hmm. a documentary or even an animated film, uh, though some of those films may have let me down recently. I was, I, I want, I like when cool <laughs> stuff like that happens. I like when the categories kind of blend into one another because it's, it's better for the business. It's better for the industry. And it's certainly better for those categories because they're underrepresented and they're certainly underestimated uh, going, uh, it, you know, in our recent past, especially, uh, I mean, it's been since Toy Story three that uh, we haven't had an animated film get nominated in best picture. Right. So Don't that worry. would be Pinocchio cool. Could, could pick up the mantle for it this year, Mike. Don't you? Yeah. Worry. I mean, uh, maybe I'll have to rewatch it at some point. Um, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm shocked that I didn't love that movie. I'm shocked. I am too. I, I am really too. am shocked, but I mean, look, I, I, I don't have this whole best picture, uh, prism in front of me right now, but I, yeah, I mean, Wakanda forever. I still think has a shot. Uh, I, even though I'm kind of dismayed that it, it didn't make either list, right? So, yeah, but like I mean, like Zoe said, you know, there's you're something's gonna make miss both lists and still end up a Best Picture nominee. I mean, Wakanda Forever is making big bucks, you know, as a as a default. You know, some can say and some can argue, but I think it's just holding pretty darn strong because it's a fun movie and it was a fun rewatch and and darn it, it's uh, it's it's worth it. So. Let's, that and uh, Glass Onion are probably the two I would look at. Yeah, let's still let's still have a year where the big uh, tent poles, you know, have more of a presence in Best Picture. I think that's good for the business. I think that's worthy in terms of this year's offerings. I think it makes sense. It's definitely something that's that doesn't happen often, so it's kind of cool as well. So, I don't know. That's kind of where my rooting interest is at the moment. Would I hate it though if? Uh, you, you know, you and I love Babylon and everybody else kind of love hates it. And we, we end up banging the table for that one, too, at the end of the day. No, yeah. I wouldn't hate that. We we love Damien Chazelle. That looks like a wild ass movie. But I could, I could see that missing based, based on the reception. Sure. Absolutely. I agree with that, too. Babylon missing both lists. Was, that's got to be uh, one of the surprises. No Netflix representation in either of these two lists either. Yeah, it's it's a strange year for Netflix. I think White Noise was their big play, obviously, but uh, Glass Onion, Glass. Well, I mean, Glass Onion's in one of the lists, but yeah, you're right in terms of the. the uh, I the forgot that. List. Yeah, Glass Onion's in NBR. So what I said about Glass Onion missing both lists and then being a Best Picture nominee wouldn't make sense. Uh, it's it's early in the award season here, people. I I got to study these more. I'm going to trip over my words more than once going forward. So, uh, you know, take it with a grain of salt. You're just going to leave all that in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take out the part where I was MFing myself, but I'll, uh, I'll leave the rest of it in. Uh, where are we? I lost African American Film Critics Association also released their top 10. Let's go there. 
Yes, The Woman King landed at number one over Wakanda Forever, Till, Sydney, Emancipation, and Glass Onion being tied at number five. The Inspection, Causeway, Everything Everywhere All at Once, Wendell and Wilde, and finally Devotion, which I'll review very positively at the end of the episode, Michael. Yeah, so what stuck out immediately to me when looking at this list was the same thing that stuck out immediately to Jacqueline Coley, who's the uh, Rotten Tomatoes Awards editor. Where's Nope? Where's Mm. Jordan Peele's Nope? I mean, that's... You know, when you consider how clear Peel made it, talking about how this was his most technically intensive film, and the fact that he's got two, his two previous films are two previous number ones from the African American Film Critics Association, and Us and Get Out in 2019 and 2017, respectively. It's weird to see Nope miss here. I wonder if it's a burden of lofty expectations. It's something we've wondered about. Uh, this particular film since the summer. He he was he was so good in his first two outings. Mm-hmm. Nope might have disappointed folks because it wasn't what they expected, perhaps, even though none of us really knew exactly what to expect with the film. But I will say the rewatch was much more impressive than the first watch with Nope. I will say that they're com- campaigning the heck out of it uh, in Hollywood, it seems. So they're, they're pushing for it. I hope that uh, Kiki Palmer is the recipient there. Same. But again, that category, who the hell knows? But no, it's not great that Nope missed here. And, and Nope made one of the two lists, AFI and uh, NBR, it made AFI, right? So, yeah. 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 I'm going to take your word for it because obviously mm-hmm. my studying of those two lists went nowhere. I still don't know what's on one list and not on the other. But uh... I'm confirming. Hold on. <laughs> yes no this is the time of year when any one of us has to go back and check something live on air instead of me cutting it and editing around it the other one should just talk about like a random fact like how mike myers used to have that jewish lady character on sn duran duran is neither a duran nor a duran talk amongst yourselves i'm verklempt yes Um, i need an explanation from the African-American Film Critics Association here, how they decide when films can share a ranking. Because I don't understand why, unless it's a pure voting process and they have have weighted categories, so it's actually a numerical vote, and Mm -hmm. there's something that ends up with the same score, shares a ranking, but I don't get why Emancipation and Glass Onion are lumped together as one entry here. It can't be because they're both from a streamer, because Causeway and Wendell and Wilde have their own ranking number, and they've Mm -hmm. only done this once before, to my research's recollection. 2019, (laughs) they had 11 films as well, where Parasite and Atlantics were giving an and ranking, except that's at least explainable because both those were international features. I don't why is Emancipation and Glass Onion an and here? Why do they share one ranking? It's Nor- 11 films in their top 10. Yeah. Normally, my track and field coach mine would be driven mad by this because it's <laughs> supposed to be like a tie for fifth, then you go right to seventh. Yeah. Uh, right. And, That's how I view it, too. <laughs> and you're right. They have an 11 film top 10 list. But, Michael, what the hell, right? It's a critics list. And, like, you and I, we both have ties in the Mike Mike and Oscars every year we both we've done this almost every single year and we cheat like crazy so (laughs) yeah but we're open and honest about it (laughs) it's a critics list it's fun they wanted to put you know an extra film on there so I I mean I just like put put make it one make every film number two have your number one film and then have number two be (laughs) 10 films with and have a 20 film top 10 list (laughs) yeah um, so we have three major lists from the African-American Film Critics Association, AFI and NBR. Netflix shows up on only the African-American Film Critics list. 
No Babylon on any list. Well, the, the Glass Onion on MBR. You keep forgetting that. You have a brain. I was thinking of ne- God damn it. You have a right. brain okay. lock on this now. Glass Woo! Onion is completely underperforming in your brain. <laughs> All right. Netflix shows up on two of the lists. Nailed it. Nailed it. Um, no Babylon. <laughs> no The Whale on any of the three lists either. Yeah. So The Whale is struggling. And Babylon, struggling. Uh, let's, uh, let's. I'm fit. struggling. <laughs> yeah. Mike one, struggling. Uh, Mike two, soon to be struggling. No. Uh We'll finish with some awards news that is actually an awards show announcement because it's pretty awesome. Jared Carmichael is now set to host this year's Golden Globes, Michael. And look, we've given the HFPA a lot of shit. Yes, well deserved. But they have actually done something awesome here and take a rising talent, take a funny ass comedian yeah. who's who's edgy and who does the the hugely popper popular hbo special and who who's is just one of these forces of nature that we've just been banging the table hey go young go go to, you know somebody cool who's who's in the who's hip right just go with some cool ass pick inspired pick for your host yeah and don't just retread all of these same comedians and late night show hopes that are too old and here, the HFPA, the one group that we want to be angrier at than anybody, picks Jared Carmichael. And this is an awesome pick. I have not watched his stand-up special yet, the one that Bo Burnham, I think, directed. Um, I did watch his SNL hosting. He was phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, he, He's phenomenal every time he takes a microphone, whether it's stand-up or whether it's a guest on a show or whatever. He's great. Yeah, so and he's I, he's a, an emerging director, too, with uh, On the Count of Three. I mean, that yes! Was, oh, that was I, I never movie. even reviewed that movie. That, that I watched that. That was great. That movie was really good. A really fun watch for like an hour and a half there. Fun, uh, interesting. Is, fun is a unique word choice. but uh, <laughs> I'm, no. I'm, I'm dark. <laughs> <laughs> You're a dark. I, I'm a dark, twisted soul, so keep that in mind. <laughs> You're but a dark yes. soul. But yeah, he, <laughs> Entertaining, let's no, say. No, he, he directed the hell out of that, so he's, he's a, a talent for sure. Uh, but we also had an interview from the HFPA president, Helen Honey. Uh, I believe is the pronunciation. It's just Hone, but it might be Honey. I'm not sure either. And she gave her first interview uh, in over a year, Michael. All right. So this is all from, uh, I believe it was Rebecca Keegan of The Hollywood Reporter. I'll give some poll quotes. We'll talk about it. But let's recap some of the changes the HFPA has instituted this past year. All right. Quote, the group's reforms have included inviting 21 new members. Congratulations. U.S.-based journalists working for outlets abroad and 103 new internationally based voters in order to create a voting pool that is 52 percent female and 51.5 percent racially and ethnically diverse. The HFPA has also banned gifts and instituted a hotline for reporting misconduct. So. I was able to go to their website and look at their entire membership, right? And it, they, they do seem to be fairly transparent about everything. And that was one of the things she mentioned in the article or in, or in the interview. And I got to be honest now. I'm not going like full last scene of Silver Linings playbook Robert De Niro. I think I do now. Yeah, I, I do like her now. I'm not going. I'm not going there yet because she's very skilled at at public relations, and she might be yes. too skilled. She might be too skilled, mm-hmm. which is again, uh, I'm a little afraid at how skilled she was in answering every single one of these questions in this article. But I agree. I applaud their votership expansion. We we have been covering 
they're, the measures they've been taking, and we keep saying it's not enough, and it's and it's, you know, do we can we forgive and forget, and it's still effed up how deeply they sunk into into bigotry and 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 corruption, right? I mean, for Christ's sake, that's what it was, and now they are trying to reform, and it seems like they're making strides. The HFPA, so I can't help but feel better about things over there right this is the most heartened i've felt about the hfpa in probably four years so there's that i think they still have you know I, my stance with the hfpa has always been stop talking about it and just do it mm-hmm. um so these are good numbers and helen hone in her part in answering these questions made sure to underline the fact that they're the only voting major awards voting body that's more than 50 percent uh, female, more than 50% racially and ethnically diverse. They're one of the only voting bodies that doesn't accept gifts. You know, they've made these changes. They had to, to survive. Will mm-hmm. they survive past this year? That remains to be seen. Here's a couple other notable takeaways from the interview. Uh, the reaccreditation process, which we've talked about and touched on, they had all their members have to kind of re apply to be a member of the HFPA. Helen Hone has said that's a real thing. There's teeth to it, is her quote. There have been former members who were not welcomed back into the HFPA as a result of that process. The hotline is for reports of inappropriate behavior, the allegations of which will be investigated by an independent law firm. Mm -hmm. Salaried HFPA members, which we kind of made a big deal about in the past as well, uh, Hone clarified that they get paid for doing, quote, work on committees which help the association. And instead of a salary, she said it's more like a stipend because their full salary for cost of living comes from their full time jobs as reporters. I personally don't love that explanation still because she didn't give any examples about what anyone who is paid by the HFPA, what work they do on what committees and how it helps the association. I thought it was much more substantial now, though, wasn't weren't they getting all like 60 K? They were getting that, like a substantial sal- right? salary. Didn't we? Didn't I? Wasn't going to bring that up, but didn't? Isn't that something we talked about? Or am I remembering that wrong? We, we might be misremembering, it, so. but yeah. that, that there was a report that uh, that was proposed at one point. I'm gonna. Good God, we we do too many episodes. I think it's, it's we can't research everything, and then when we bring up stuff that we've researched <laughs> in the past, we question it because we're not we've lawyers. Darn it! Oh wait, you know, just <laughs> that doesn't work okay. either. That explanation won't fly. <laughs> uh, as far as the HFPA and the Golden Globes future. Uh, another reveal by Hone, this will seemingly be the final year of the Globes on NBC. She indicated they are, in fact, looking for a new broadcast or streaming partner. That's interesting. They did seem, or she was very specific about talking about new media and the new landscape, and it seems like she is certainly considering the streaming option, perhaps more than than other award shows have given credit. So I, I would... Again, you know, that we've been banging the table for somebody to go streaming. Somebody's going to take the plunge. They might be it. Yeah, one of these award shows is going to do it. So, yeah, a lot of good for an organization that needs good and uh, kind of has to do good at this point in order to survive the HFPA. Well, I tell you what, we'll do a show following up on their nominations, and after Amsterdam gets five of the major categories, <laughs> we'll completely change our minds. No, uh, Michael, let's talk about the DC Comics uh, Extended Universe mess. 
in terms of what's happening at WB right now. And we have a bunch of headlines uh, that you're going to dive deeper into. But first, I want to cover some of the highlights from the Boris Kitt article that started it all at the Hollywood Reporter entitled Wonder Woman 3 is not moving forward at WBDC. And here Kitt noted rumors that other Spider-Verse properties would not be continued. Snyderverse. Snyderverse. What did I say? Spider-Verse. Spider-Verse. It's very different than Snyder-Verse. <laughs> I.E., Man of Steel 2, Aquaman 3, uh, and the sequel to Black Adam would all be rumored to be unlikely in terms of their continuation, even though Kit notes that no firm directed uh, direction has been decided upon. Now, Kit's piece would, would go on to say that after Aquaman 2, Jason Momoa has been rumored to stay in the DC family as they have plans for him and Lobo, the character of Lobo. Uh, but again, both Gunn and Saffron are keeping open minds about possible success stories like Shazam, Fury of the Gods, Blue Beetle, and I would guess Aquaman 2 is considered in that group. But Kit noted that both Gunn and Saffron are trying to come up with a long-term plan for a presentation, an upcoming presentation on that, on uh, whatever their plan is to CEO David Zaslav. And this plan will, as you're going to uh, document here, it's likely not going to affect the Batman or Joker Joker sequels. A follow-up story in The Hollywood Reporter by Aaron Couch. James Gunn said he will build upon what has worked and rectify what has not. Okay, so Black Adam leaving, we get that why that may not have worked if that's a rumor to go. I don't mm -hmm. understand the recasting of Jason Momoa because Aquaman has made them that studio money. Big money. Uh, but, Wonder but, Woman has yeah. worked, but there was a huge falling out between Patty Jenkins and the studio, apparently, which we're going to talk about next. But right now, DC basically is saying, okay, we have The Rock, we have Margot Robbie, we have Gal Gadot. And we have Henry Cavill, who just came back as Superman, and we're okay letting all four of them walk. It does seem like they're considering that option rather That's strongly. weird. Yeah. <laughs> right? That's not a way to make money. <laughs> like, you wouldn't think so. You would not think so. But anyway, as far as what happened between Patty Jenkins and what's going on with Wonder Woman 3 and why that's not going to go forward seemingly at DC or WB right now. Uh, the rap came out. The first report was from the Hollywood reporter that said that uh, James Gunn wouldn't be going forward with Wonder Woman 3, or at least it wasn't part of the DC's vision going forward. The rap came out shortly thereafter and said that Wonder Woman 3 wasn't canceled by James Gunn or anyone at DC. In fact, it was Patty Jenkins who instead walked away from DC. A quote from the article, although Gunn and Saffron have been given a mandate to reshape the DC landscape, Warner Brothers Discovery has ongoing enterprises that nobody was going to mess with, according to one insider. This includes Matt Reeves writing the sequel to The Batman, J.J. Abrams' black-led Superman from Tana DC Coates, Todd Phillips, Joker 2, and Patty Jenkins doing Wonder Woman 3. Okay, so the Batman made $770 million. Uh, It makes sense. We've been saying this all along. It makes mm -hmm. sense to do a, a Batman 2. Joker made over a billion, and that's one's full steam ahead. Uh, and, of course, 2017's Wonder Woman made $822 million, with the sequel being the you know, the, the linchpin and a huge plan to put WB's theatrical slate day and date on HBO Max, which everybody criticized at the time and filmmakers and the studio had a lot of falling out over that. Uh, but we did note that 
HBO Max doubled their subscribership from 30-something million to 60-something million uh, subs during that time. We were keeping track Mm -hmm. as some guys who can keep track of simple math. Now, (laughs) we don't understand overhead or whatever black and red means or (laughs) all that other stuff. But look, I mean, there were... Many strong feelings on all three sides of this as we've been covering since the WTFWB episode, right? I mean, we had we had new management, old management, and we've had the talent like Patty Jenkins having spoken out about this particular Wonder Woman 84, whether directly or indirectly in Zaslav's case. And there's, there's seemingly still some very serious levels of mistrust between filmmaker Patty Jenkins and this overall studio here, Michael. Yeah, so here's reportedly from the rap again what happened in the timeline of events, generally speaking. I'm paraphrasing a lot of this, but Patty Jenkins wrote a treatment for Wonder Woman 3. Mm-hmm. WBCEO slash co-chairs Michael DeLuca and Pamela Adby don't get it. Mm-hmm. They ask her to consider rewriting a whole new treatment. She refuses, claims they don't understand her vision or character arcs in general, and reportedly in an email back to them, attached the Wikipedia article for character arcs, which is objectively hilarious. Rude, mm. but hilarious. Gunn and Saffron reportedly agree with DeLuca and Adby about not liking the treatment, though they have no part in the decision asking Patty Jenkins to rewrite a treatment. Jenkins then gives the impression that Gunn and Saffron can go screw, even Mm -hmm. though they had no part in the decision to kill her treatment, which is to say, when you read that part and read how Jenkins is being portrayed in this article, I don't think anyone from Patty Jenkins' representation or camp was being used as a source. This seems like a one-way sourced article, probably from the WB side. But another quote, Jenkins was told that if she wanted to come back and pitch a different direction for Wonder Woman, the studio would hear it. She stood firm to her vision and responded that if they didn't want her to do if they didn't want to do her treatment, she wasn't going to do a different one and would instead just move on to her next film. So there's the big falling out and why Wonder Woman 3 will have no part. Interestingly, prior to this going down or prior to this becoming public, I should say, Gal Gadot seemingly randomly tweeted out how she was thanking the fans for being, you know, letting her be Wonder Woman and putting her on this adventure and she can't wait for the next adventure. And that just seemed like a a random post on Twitter thanking people. But now with this added context after the fact, that seemed like it was Gal Gadot saying goodbye to the character of Wonder Woman. Yeah, it does definitely seem so. In terms of Patty Jenkins, I thought... I remember her being attached to something else, but now I can't remember it. And IMDb is not telling me so. Uh, Wonder Woman 3 is her only upcoming project there, uh, and that seems to be Nick's. So, look, I, I, bottom line, I think asking a filmmaker of Jenkins' status to come back and do it over in terms of a treatment is fairly rare, I would say. I mean, I'm not party to all these discussions. Maybe it happens more regularly than I think, but when you reject their viewpoint and it, and it, things get as heated to the point where you're sending them Wikipedia articles to uh, retort, it's it's not a great look there. And yeah, that article did, did Jenkins dirty, I think. I mean, it, it seems very one-sided in that it paints Jenkins in this difficult-to-work-with brush, and I can't believe a woman who has made that studio that much money and has done that well by that studio and done that well by filmmaking in general would be so one-way like that. Yeah, and there's also no surprise that this is like the last straw 
in terms of Jenkins' situation because she was not happy about the day-and-date maneuver with Wonder Woman 84. Yep, the studio had to go back and make things right by her and Gal Gadot, both. Which was probably paying for this treatment, so that's that's fairly typical. And look, I mean, Black Adam underperforms. I think they have projections on Aquaman 2 and certainly Shazam. Are they wonder? And the Flash is a mess, even though that might do well at the end of the day. Can you imagine letting Patty Jenkins go, but you're still standing by releasing the Flash movie? It seems like they're gonna. What, release- what is going on in that studio? Yeah. It, and here's it, my here's another question that struck me. Okay, we have Zaslav talking to investors. We want our own uh, Kevin Feige. They hire James Gunn. They hire Peter Saffron. That's fine. Those are going to be those guys. And their big plan is. We're going forward with the Batman 2. We're going forward with uh, Joker as standalone properties. We were going to go forward with uh, Wonder Woman. We're going forward with J.J. Abrams, uh, uh Coates, written Black Superman. Aren't you just doing Walter Hamada's vision? I I agree with you that they're they're keeping. I mean, the the, the courageous thing to do would have been just to stop everything and go in one new direction, right? That would have been the courageous thing to do. And it would have been, I mean, financially stupid, probably, to do that. They were not going to walk away from all the billion-dollar properties. Here, they may be walking away from half the billion-dollar properties to try and reboot them, which is still fairly courageous, but (laughs) at least you you think you have the two people that could get you down the road on those. Now, is this a negotiation posturing? I doubt it with Patty Jenkins, right? Can you ever see her coming back to the table after this? Very unlikely, right? I mean, mean, it'd have to be a package deal. It'd have to be her and Gal at this point, you know? I don't think you're going to get one without the other. But we've seen in these articles citations that they're saving a lot of money by letting them walk, which, again, goes towards your point that these are probably... WB sources in and these. Feige swoops in and ha- tabs Patty Jenkins for something, right? So we can talk about how this became a James Gunn for Patty Jenkins swap between Marvel and DC. That's an interesting, uh, interesting speculation right there. Yeah, that could happen. Would Would you be that surprised? I would not. Not at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, you Marvel just posted it, and three. I just asked you if you would be yeah. surprised at what yeah. you post. Mm-hmm. I do. I am often surprised by my own thoughts, though. That's a fair <laughs> question by you. <laughs> Michael, we have to get serious here uh, and review some movies for once uh, in our podcast history. Uh, I want to make the case for and against certain things. You want to make the case for and against certain things from five movies, I believe. Emancipation is going to be the first one. This is Antoine Fuqua starring Will Smith, Ben Foster uh, from Apple TV Plus and Emancipation is easily one of the most difficult watches of the last 20 years for me. Wow. Mike, I, I cannot remember being stuck in a cinematic hell, not because it was poorly made, but just in terms of subject matter. For as long as this, since maybe Son of Saul, which was a Holocaust drama that won Best International Feature maybe 10 years ago now. So, look, there's just... There's an incredible amount of filmmaking capability here. This is really well made. The intensity pays off. Fuqua is uh, certainly just as competent a filmmaker as you get, mm-hmm. but it is unrelenting. And if I'm totally honest, I I don't know if the Academy is going to watch something so brutal once they start it. I, I would be w- surprised if this plays really well on Apple 
uh, really? based based on how quickly this thing gets just really grotesque in terms of the horror stories of it all. Now, Will Smith, he sh- he would have gotten nominated a hundred times out of a hundred for this performance had last year's Oscars not happened. I mean, it is it is easily one of the best performances by an actor this year, and I mean just the just the sheer endurance of it all and the quantity of quality performing that he's pulling off here whether it's as a, as an action hero or certainly in the in, I mean he has the Oscar scene my god does he have the Oscar scene I mean the the nuanced performance of it all Will Smith is incredible in this in this role in emancipation I haven't I mean he's this is some of his best work there's no question about it so if he gets nominated at the end of the day it would make sense and yet it's hanging over his head what happened last year. Right, and you wonder where the motivation is for Academy members to watch this for his performance. Uh, I, I mean, is it is the uncomfortableness the sole reason for the tepid reception, or at least the grades that this has gotten thus far? I think the script struggles a little bit in terms of transitional scenes. You have flat characters, uh, and again, you understand why they're flat characters. They're monsters. They're sub, you know, they're, 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 subhuman evil in terms mm. of the the slavers in this movie that you just want to just you want to hate them for certain and i can't get over how 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 you could be such but we've heard these i mean because this is like remember the the django unchained a labor camp that he was you know being threatened to be sent off to yeah before he got away uh, sorry spoiler alert there but like th- th- we go to one of those labor camps mm in this movie and it's just is there a- any reprieve like are, are there bright lines throughout Mike, or there's not a reprieve for like oh, two geez. hours and 15 minutes oh, <laughs> that's wow. the problem like you you don't get a reprieve until the end of the movie okay so but that's what was gonna be my next question when will smith says i'm not making a slave movie i'm making a freedom movie he's at least telling the truth yeah <laughs> thank god look at i think this movie pays off and and, and, and it works however it, it really makes you i mean look at we deserve to go through this it's the right. least we can do right right so I, I mean you watch something like this just to get an inkling of an understanding by we you mean people who may not understand you know what ex- exactly exactly happened or don't have right. family members right. that can tell them yeah so yeah, i got you I mean, you have you have to do it, but it, it is a hard watch. And it's you know, I felt the same way about Son of Saul when I watched that one years ago about the Holocaust. So it's just, it's it's brutal. It is as brutal as you can get. And um, I I do wonder if the Academy will kind of reward that endurance test, uh, even with Will Smith's scandal still looming over everything. Does it have any legs outside of Will Smith's performance? Well, cinematography should be in the mix. I think uh, production design and costume design and makeup and hair, you know, for the battle wounds of of it all, good God, that all should be in the mix. Yeah. Okay. All right. So there is is reasons to to watch it if you are an Academy member. It's just a matter of will they actually put the screener in. I don't know. I I would doubt it. I, 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 I I would guess this. I would guess they'd start it and not watch it. That's what, that's what I would Interesting. guess. All right. What about Devotion, Mike? Okay. This is J.D. Dillard of Slight and uh, Sweetheart. Uh, this is for Sony. This is Glenn Powell. And My Jonathan, man! 
Glenn Powell and Jonathan Majors. Uh, I was very impressed with Devotion, Michael. Uh, Jonathan Majors is awesome. He's excellent. He really goes for it in several scenes. He pulls it off. And the if most Jonathan po- Majors and Coleman Domingo walked into the same place. <laughs> does the air just get like infinitely colder because of the coolness of both those men, or just like Probably. the universe sucking in on itself and just create a black hole? What happens? And good God, how cool was Jonathan Majors in this movie? He's got the Leo factor where he. He performs obliquely. He gives you reactions you wouldn't expect. He's loud when he shouldn't be. He's quiet and, and composed. And you know Michael Corleone when 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 right. you wouldn't expect him to be that way. So the most powerful of scenes though is in the mirror, and he's talking to himself and hyping himself up, and it's really incredible. So that was like Oscar catnip for every me every year we got to have the mirror scene every year for an so oscar bait just look out for jonathan majors if people actually watch this movie in terms of the uh, the academy of motion picture sciences they gotta love that it was one of the better mirror scenes in a while and then you just have him and all the pilots doing some excellent work mid-air i mean they're in these cockpits it's so obvious they're in these cockpits in these 1950 warplanes uh, much like top gun except they're going maybe you know a a fifth of the speed. So I wonder if the Top Gun fatigue, I wonder if the Top Gun just doing it at a faster level kind of doomed this movie in terms of the box office because this is a $90 million budget and and we see every cent of it. Mike, we see every cent of it on screen. And this is a Korean War movie. This is, I mean, they they got leave these, these pilots and they go to the south of France. They go to Cannes. What a gorgeous sequence that is. They go to this cool-ass casino. It's so much fun. It's like a James Bond movie for 30, 20 minutes. And I, I just I loved watching this movie. I had a great time with it. It's a bit conventional, and you hit some traditional notes in terms of a, a war movie, but Devotion is flopping. It is it's only yeah, made it is. $15 million for Sony, $90 million budget. That is terrible. Uh, this should have been a mainstream money if not money maker at least not a money loser and i just wonder yeah it has to be maverick fatigue but i give this b plus 87 all day the filmmaking craft is excellent i mean i i'd have to go back in my list but like first man is certainly one of those films back in the day where like why isn't this doing better Mm. but there's certainly a there's a list of these kind of movies where i would just say i i I wish more people would see it maybe it finds life on vod but yeah lost more than 50 percent of its uh audience from first week into second week and then its first week and it only made nine million dollars and it's playing over three thousand screens as well at least according to box office mojo all those numbers so not great for its chances as far as you know box office respectability goes for as much as the Academy looks at that type of thing. So Mm. you would think this one probably ends up on the outside looking in. And they did all the right things too. They had it go to a couple of big festivals and get, get itself some runway. And unfortunately we're, we're still here. And and, the box office was open to it as well. I mean, Mm. it was open in the sense that it could have just could have took off, but why am I using all these metaphors? But I am anyway, I think our, this entire show is like 90% metaphor, 10% one of us screaming. Cheesy metaphors galore. <laughs> Do you have any of those for All Cheesy Quiet on... Cheesy metaphors. <laughs> all Quiet on the Western Front, Michael. Uh, one of the prettiest movies of the year that I've seen, but, you know, ironically, not all that quiet as a movie goes. <laughs> Nailed it. Uh, look, there's some truly remarkable, like, eyes glued to the screen visuals in this. The scene involving tanks is, like, to my mind, 
quite yeah. unlike anything I've seen from a tank scene in a war movie, maybe yeah. ever. Yeah. And some of this stuff, the way it's shot and the music, and it, it's like borders on slasher film. So that's why it appears appeals to me. This is like horror movie stuff in this thing. You've seen it, Mike. You already reviewed this yourself. You know what I'm talking about. I think cinematography should absolutely be considered outside of, uh, you know, maybe screenplay and international feature. I think the score should be considered because there's that grating, mm. ominous, you know, three-note, deep sound score that lets you know some bad shit is about to come, and it happens so often throughout this movie. Yeah. In the way that you like Till score because it, like, fit that genre of, like, being, you know, hymnal and being in church and, and, and feeling of community and bringing yourself together, mm-hmm. I think this kind of does the same thing on the opposite end of the spectrum. It's like, it's ominous, it's brooding, it's, you know, some bad stuff's about to go down. And every time you hear it, at least to me, it really did a number on the viewer's psyche. I mean, it's like, oh, God, what now? What more can these guys be put through here in World War One? Right. I agree. The transitional musical interludes are were, were incredible. It reminded me... You're right. It reminded me of Kubrick. It also was like a little Paul Thomas Anderson there with the uh, sure. the Radiohead. Uh, what was the other band? Trent Reznor's band. Gosh darn Nine it. Inch Nails. Nine Inch Nails. That tandem yeah. working in. Yeah, um, exactly. I, I also think we got to revisit. I mean, you kind of made the case already with Devotion for the same thing. But hair and makeup, I think, needs to be revisited because the caked on like mud Mm-hmm. That these guys are dealing with on their face and in their hair and stuff like that. And these battle wounds and they haven't showered and they look gross. And it's just like you can smell them through your TV. I think that should be considered when we when we consider hair and makeup. I don't think it just has to be period piece stuff or like superhero stuff. Unless it's made of real cake. That probably was an <laughs> uncomfortable experience. I would agree. I don't think it's actual <laughs> mud or cake that these people are wearing on their faces. But yeah, I mean, this is what I... I I wrote it down. Hang on, let me pull it up here. I gave it an 85B. Yeah, it's a solid yeah. B all day. I understand completely why this is getting the love it is in a couple of categories. Uh, Do you have the lead actor, Felix Kammerer, anywhere <laughs> in your top 10, anywhere in your top five? What'd you think of his performance? It's good, but he's not 17. He's He looks younger. He looks a little younger, right? He, th- he looks younger, but like I'm looking at a 24 year old minimum. Yeah, you know? probably. I'm not, you know, it take, that takes it away from me. Is that his fault? No, it's my fault. It's a me thing. But yeah, he's acting's very good. But I didn't at any point believe I was. I thought I was watching a grown man here on screen, and it means more if you're watching an actual, you know, underage child going through this for Christ's sake. Good, that's a good pull. Your eyesight, your glasses might be working. Uh, twenty, <laughs> he's twenty-seven, Michael. Oh, there you go. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's that it wasn't. It's tough. Twenty-seven pulling off seventeen is a tough ask. Yeah, I was gonna go all Spider-Man on you and i was gonna be like what's his name tom holland like tom holland looks young he's just a young soul he's so cute how old 30. is tom holland i don't know how old is he? he's probably like 25 he's, he's probably like 14 he's a baby 26 yeah Age. but tom holland i would at least yeah i could buy him as 18 19 right oh all right let's get to it mike <laughs> <laughs> We've been talk, avoiding this. Talk about Pinocchio to wrap this up with. Uh, all right. Um, I just do want to be respectful because, like, what do we got to – I mean, look, we just can't be dicks every time we don't like a movie, look, right? Uh, no, there's – there's uh, maybe I'm more optimistic than you in this, which is a real telling of how you viewed this movie. But 
I think the fact that the stop motion animation and like watching the videos about the guys needing to move the figurines like one centimeter at a time, I will never understand how people do that without going crazy. I always respect that aspect of it. The visuals looked gorgeous. I was not as down on some of the songs as you were. And I thought one of the songs presented like one of the montages of the year towards the end when he's kind of singing about missing Geppetto there on the stage. Um, I think Mm. there are positives to pull from this. I understand why people go as gaga over it in terms of like it being emotional. So here's where I butt up against Pinocchio or yeah. where I have trouble. I think that I'm on the record for this kind of story bothering me. And it is like with the green Knight, like with, uh, with the Northman, I tend to get aggravated by the deus ex machina based storytelling of centuries ago where you have a deity in this case you have forest floating eyeballs in the first (laughs) 10 minutes of this movie basically driving the plot and creating what happens here this you have the supernatural and what ultimately occurs from this by the recurring you know deities being involved here is a bit of a fairy tale soap opera and I look at the causal relationships just being kind of non-existent. Otherwise, you know, every time you fall into the water, you, the same whale will swallow you. <laughs> like, I just, I have a problem with this from a writing sense, a screenwriting sense, because I've tried so hard and failed so hard <laughs> to make cogent screenplays make sense in my life. And I right. just, it really does bother the hell out of me when a movie just says, F all of that. We're just gonna sing and dance our way through a bunch of <laughs> a bunch of scenes that are not necessarily connected by cause and effect that 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 makes sense that lines up. Even there are several characters in this movie that they don't make a good decision or at least a logical one the whole movie, and it's certainly in in all the foils and and some of the antagonists. It's just just completely. I just I don't understand like the fascist character in this movie like all the people at the church are yelling at Pinocchio for being a demon and all of a sudden he's concerned about whether or not Pinocchio goes to school (laughs) I don't think I'm spoiling anything it's just you take this leap in this movie and I'm just like what in God's name is happening now uh, look Geppetto's voice I don't need Walter Frey voicing my Geppetto I'm sorry I'm shocked you dislike that I love that actor from the Harry Potter series Mr. Bradley, I believe, and Walder Frey was a, a perfectly play, played character in the Game of Thrones series. His voice is shot. It is screechy and weak as hell. I'm sorry. Like, wow. I mean, Geppetto is a immaculately groomed beard of a man, mm-hmm. of a puppet. And that voice just ruins it for me. And then, look, I may just not like children. I may just be a bad person. (laughs) You could be at your wit's end with it, too. But why is Oliver Twist playing Pinocchio? Why is this kid who screams every line of dialogue at us from most of the movie? Like, I don't like these two main characters. I don't like them. And then Sebastian the Cricket is a one-joke, one-note character until he gets the climactic decision of the film. Like, why do we give him the climactic decision of the film when he is just a one-joke, which was never funny, joke? Uh, uh, My response to all that in agreement would be that Christoph Waltz should 
if you're going to make him an antagonist, let Quentin Tarantino do your screenplay. Because <laughs> he's too damn charismatic and too damn interesting, even just his voice, to be a bad guy. Like, you want more about him than you do anyone else. At least I did for this movie. I, I'm confused about some of the overall issues as well. Like, the mythology doesn't make a lot of sense to me. We ha- Maybe I'm just ignorant. The historical so backdrop. You know, it's, not, it's not like... All your things that you're saying, I don't disagree with, but they also weren't my main, main complaints, which is like... <laughs> The fact that I have other main complaints isn't great for how we both view this movie collectively. Like, yeah, maybe I'd forgive all of these things if I enjoyed the music. Maybe I'd forgive all these things if I enjoyed the comedy. Maybe if I was the type of reviewer when I'm not. Like, we've seen so many gorgeously filmed movies with beautiful cinematography and production design like this production design is gorgeous we don't give enough credit you and i to i mean we are because we are such strong story junkies and character junkies we don't give enough credit to the technical sometimes and that's why i'm really trying to go out of my way like i I think i gave this a b minus or a c plus but like it's it's purely because of the technicals i'm trying to like i mean it looks absolutely stunning obviously the the tech work that went into moving these figurines like i said is a big deal it took forever I'm trying to give that as much credit as I possibly can. My eyes are drawn to every single corner of the screen to notice all of the vivid details of these settings. I mean, I can't get over how, you know, we have a foggy setting on the docks. We got the, the beautiful town on the hill and Mm -hmm. on the pier that the ocean is gorgeous. Even the freaky weird settings of the, of the gods and the deities. I won't give away what those are. I've spoiled. Were those in the Disney version? No, I didn't think so. (laughs) I mean, maybe this is me just being frustrated because this Pinocchio is not the Disney Pinocchio, even though I just hated the Tom Hanks, the Mechas. That was, I was going to ask you, which, which which viewing uh, experience did you like more between this and the Tom Hanks one? I was shocked that I really despised both of them. And that's my that's my true take on this movie. I had strong feelings against Pinocchio. Now, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. And I love Guillermo del Toro's career. I mean, I've cited how Pan's Labyrinth was one of the most important experiences I've ever had as mm-hmm. a film critic, as a film student, as a in my life. And you know, we've given some of his movies hell for not being as good as we've hoped they would be, but we've also given him a ton of credit in the past for for how well he can he can make a movie and this is this is really high in, in terms of my mind like like we said in craft and if you told me that the score for this plot or because the score is very good as well music behind these songs i i don't like the songs here i think they're really nails on a chalkboard and maybe i don't like the voices singing them but that's a me problem maybe i'm so disneyified but no, I'm really soul searching right now for why I didn't like this movie, and I because a lot of people I respect, a lot of our our listeners love this movie, a lot of our uh, critics that we look up to and pundits that we look up to love this movie. Mike, I just don't get like this is perhaps as as surprising a, a, a watch for me in a long time because I I, wa- I showed this to people. I wanted I wanted this to be a really nice night, just staying in watching a movie. And it just completely backfired on me. Yeah, I uh, I should have been more concerned going in than I was because me and Guillermo del Toro have a trepidatious history. Uh, but I just I didn't get this. I thought it was over long, overwritten. Maybe I fell asleep a couple times. I said to you in the pre-show, "Thank God I was able to watch this at home." Because if I had to sit in a theater 
where this was going on nonstop, I would have lost my mind. Like and I yet, had to pause it and take yeah. laps around the house. I disagreed with you because I was like, sometimes a theater will force me to focus on all the other cool stuff. Yeah. Whereas I was, I was really having the fidgets. I yeah. wanted to, I wanted to go on every other screen. I wanted to put the Knicks game on, and I refused. And I, I stayed disciplined. I stayed watching it for the most part, but I was really feeling the urge to do anything else. All I know is that I think we both have to become Team Marcel Deschel with shoes on now. That's yeah, all I. I think like we'll, we'll spin this in a positive light. Hopefully, <laughs> we don't lose too many listeners from this. We still, we still love GDT. We still love stop motion animation. I love his campaign that he's doing. Good God, it's a, it's it's a beautiful one. And yeah, I just uh, wow. I just I'm shocked that I didn't love this movie. And hey, again, this is not our main thing reviewing the movies, but um, yeah, it's it's a part of it and. I guess it's just, I don't know. We are very against the grain on this one. We are out on a limb, and I wouldn't be surprised if people just broke the tree branch. Well, there you go. That's that's for you to do, dear listener. We want to hear from you. I mean, how wrong are we about Pinocchio? Let us know that as well as your thoughts about anything else we covered in this episode. What do you think about the DCEU mess that's going on? Your takes on the HFPA and Gerard Carmichael hosting the Golden Globes. Where do you think the Globes go from here? And obviously we want you to weigh in on all the top ten lists that came out, the three big ones, NBR, AFI, and the African American uh, Film Critics Association. Let us know all that as well as any other thoughts, comments, questions, or concerns you have about anything else we do here in the mmo empire as always you can leave us all those on our social medias we are mike mike and oscar on facebook and instagram at mm and oscar on twitter mike mike and oscar at gmail.com.com and on reddit we are available wherever you do hear podcasts if you're listening to us on either the apple podcast or spotify app if you appreciate what we do if you wouldn't mind leaving us a five-star review those help us out a ton thank you to everyone who has done so thus far uh yeah michael i look forward to fighting some of our listeners or at least them berating us over our well, takes on Pinocchio. I, I look, I, I, it's always wise to have uh, to have conversations about movies, and and look, it's been it's happened many a times before where I've disliked the film on first watch and and come to love it on second and third. It happened two years ago during the pandemic, Palm Springs. Like we didn't love Palm Springs, we're like, what the hell? We we're both in cranky moods. It was the middle of pandemic. Next thing I know, I'm watching that movie the most that year. It's my favorite movie of the year by the end of it all. Do you of. think honestly you're going to go back and rewatch Pinocchio? I'm curious to rewatch it at some point. I'm probably not going to jump at it right now because I'm a bit bummed. But yeah, I mean, please stay with us. Please stay. Don't don't hate <laughs> me because I get mad. And I'm the opposite. I hate you. Hate me. Hate listen. Yeah, please at least hate listen us uh, for what's coming next because the Golden Globes and Critics Choice nominations happen next week. Globes on Monday, Choice on Wednesday. Uh, we were talking about some uh, recording times for those. We'll try and jump on them. We have Avatar The Way of Water hitting theaters on Thursday night as well. We have a Sundance lineup that we couldn't fit in this episode because we had so much other stuff and then we have a ton of critics associations the oscar shortlists uh a whole slate of christmas movies not christmas themed movies but christmas releases like the whale women talking babylon i want to dance with somebody etc etc that we want to touch on and continue to review over the coming weeks so a ton of stuff to come michael uh, did you tell me to give my words of wisdom yet? I have another one. Another no, go set ahead. of words. Yeah. Sorry. Because uh, if you want to hear my <laughs> Pinocchio hating voice elsewhere, <laughs> sorry, do check out Gold Standard, Stop the Oscars podcast. I'm sorry because I feel like I need to, but look at the. 
I do not have to apologize for Gold Standard. They are a terrific show. They have been reviewing every Best Picture winner from the first in Wings all the way through the 65th Best Picture winner in, in Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, where I was blessed to be a part of that roundtable discussion. I had a blast talking with uh, Gold Standard co-hosts Nick and Rachel about how Unforgiven took home the prize over a few good men, over the crying game and other films of 1992. And I certainly made my old American literature teacher uh, very (laughs) proud by citing how we studied the quote-unquote revisionist Western and uh, certainly how Unforgiven has stood very tall in the Western genre ever since, even 30 years later. So it is wise to check out Gold Standard, the Oscars podcast. And to forgive also Mike for his take on Pinocchio because he's desperate. (laughs) Hello, governor. (laughs) You have some more. When reality sucks, you can come apologize for your takes with us. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make award season year-round. Without the stuffiness, we will see you all very soon. See ya. (laughs) 